Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So last week, if you remember, uh, we started here in Hebrews, and we said that we don't know who the author exactly is in Hebrews. Uh, Some people would say Paul, some people would say Apollos, Barnabas, we're not really sure. And what we kind of said was it really doesn't matter because what's most important is that it's exalting who Christ is. And so we even thought maybe that one view is that maybe God intentionally obviously doesn't want us to know who the author is because he doesn't want it to be about someone else. He wants the focus to be on his son. And so this letter this is being written to what we believe would be Hebrews, so obviously Jews, but now have been converted to Christianity. And what really the author is trying to do in this whole text is to, to bring to life the Old Testament. Remember, he's speaking to Jews primarily. Because what he's saying is, he says, what I need you to know is that Christ is in the Old Testament. These, this, he's a fulfillment of all things. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this, but I know what many of us spend most of our time in the New Testament because it is the New Testament, it's the, it's the New Covenant, uh, it's where we see Jesus clearly, uh, but we can see him clearly in the Old Testament. I just want to quickly kind of do a, a whirlwind. This entire uh, book is, is about what? Creation, the fall, redemption, and eternity and glory. That's really the, the picture of it. And, and, and what it then has in that is this central figure... Jesus. And you say, well, but yeah, but there's 39 books of the Old Testament, and Jesus, we don't see him until the New Testament, until 27 books. No, we see him in the very beginning. How do we see that? One, we know in the Gospel of John, he was the creator. He, uh, he was the agent of creation, you know, and, and I know last week, if you were here last week's service, some of you were, had a little indigestion about the fact that I said Jesus was a helper in creation, and I really should have explained that. I, was, I knew it when I wrote that word down that you would say, oh, well, no, he did it. He was the agent of creation. He was God, and God created all things through his son. So he wasn't like a helper. He was the creator. And so I I apologize I didn't explain that better. But here we see in the Gospel of John, he was the creator of all things. He was before the foundations of the world, and he created all things. All things were made through him and for him and by him. But then where do we see Jesus? Immediately we see Jesus in the garden. Where do we see Jesus in the garden? After Adam and Eve sin, God kills an animal. The first death. That's a picture of Christ right there. It says he made them coats of skin to cover their shame. There's Jesus. We see him in the ark, of the, the, you know, Noah's ark. What is the ark a picture of? Christ. We're in Christ. We're saved from the wrath of God. That's Christ. We see him in the prophets. We see him in Moses. When Moses intercedes on Mount Sinai, and because God wants to destroy the Jews, and, to, and, and Moses intercedes and, and stops that from happening, and says God changed his mind. No, God really didn't change his mind, but God was setting up this picture of his son, That this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come and my son is going to intercede for you and save you from my wrath. There it is again. We see it in in Joseph and all of the Old Testament. We just see it. We see it in the whole tribe of the Levites, right? The priests that would go before God and and petition God and and sacrifice animals and, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of Jesus. He's our high priest. The whole Old Testament just exudes Christ. And so... We get here to Hebrews, and why is, why is it necessary for this author to write this? 
I'm going to make the argument, and I think this is, we can stand on this, is that he's writing to a, a group of Jews that in that time, Jesus had come, he'd been resurrected. There was a lot of debate about, was this really the Messiah and the Jewish people? Maybe they, some of them might clearly believe that, that, well, he maybe was a, a very godly man. Maybe he was an angel. Maybe he was angelic. Absolutely. He was, he was holy and, and sent by God, but was he the Messiah? And so there was a, a real talk among a lot of Jews that who this guy really was. And you can imagine the pressure on the Christians. And you say, well, God holds them. And that's absolutely true. But th- there's pressure. Did you, if, as a Christian today, do you have pressure to not believe? Do you have, like the world tells you that it's not true. All the time, the world is saying it's not true. Shows that we watch, the people that we talk to, just you name it. They say, well, that's not true, that's not true. And there's this pressure. And the same thing was happening, I think, to the Israelites that had converted to Christianity. Their family was saying, that's not true. Maybe he was holy, Raleigh, but he wasn't the Messiah. And so here, what, what the author is doing is he's saying, you believe in the Old Testament text, because they, they lived in the Old Testament text. I mean, that was their text, the Septuagint, which was the, the Old Testament written in Greek. I mean, they, they lived there, and they knew the text. It was read all the time. And now what the author is going to do is he's going to say, I want to show you that he is who he says he is, and that he really did come, and he fulfilled all of those things. And so he's encouraging the church to be reminded of them that this is who Christ is. This is what God has done. Now, I will tell you that this passage of text is, is what he's going to do, and, and, and it's, I would just encourage you because we're not going to be able to touch on everything in here. What he's going to do is he's going to quote many places in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Now, what's, what's mystery here a little bit is that he's going to quote a psalm or multiple psalms, and those psalms in the psalm itself has a meaning when the psalmist wrote it. It has its own meaning. But now he's going to take that psalm and he's going to bring it into and he's going to make it say this is the fulfillment of Christ. And you're going to look back at that psalm and you say, well, that's not what it says there. It doesn't say that it's a fulfillment of Christ. And the author's saying, no, but God is, that's a picture, and I'm going to show it to you here, all right? So, and that, that can be complicated a little bit. When you read the psalm, you say, well, I don't quite understand that. This psalm is talking about this, and he's going to take it. And he's going to say, yep, but that is a picture of who Jesus is. And he's going to say, God actually says this about Jesus. Okay, so I encourage you to study this on your own because we're not going to be able to dive in as deep as what I would like to this morning um, in all of this in the time that we have today. But, but let's go ahead and take a jump in here. So what do we see here? What's, what's the big idea of all this? Last week we talked about the fact that um, you know, nothing is, is greater than Jesus. Our view of Jesus is so important. Is our view big enough, right? That's what we said last night. Is your view of Christ and Jesus and who he is big enough? We talk a lot about what Jesus has done for us. Think about when you talk to somebody, the first thing we want to go to if we're sharing the gospel is, well, Jesus died for you. You're a sinner. He died for you. And don't get me wrong, that's really important. But I think that we need to back up a little bit. We need to let them know who Jesus is. That he's superior to all things, that he is God in the flesh. Because see, yes, he does those things, but we need to be overwhelmed by who he is. Especially as believers, we should, we should want to know him for who he is and, and have worship and, and have a relationship with him and, and be in awe of him. We said a few weeks ago that 
It's important what we worship. And when we see Jesus that way, when we understand who he is, when our view of Christ is, is appropriate and, and God-centered, we will be overwhelmed. And, and that's where we want to start, even in our conversations with other people. And so what's your big idea today as we look at these 10 verses? Jesus has superiority in all things. That's really what the, the writer here in Hebrews is going to really lay out. He's, he's superior in all things. Because you've got to remember, they're comparing him in that time frame. Um, many thought that maybe angels, they, they worshipped angels. We see that in the New Testament some. Some worshipped angels. They, they had high regard for angels. And, and clearly, angels play a huge role in the kingdom, and God uses them and their servants and messengers. But he's wanting to make sure that people aren't confusing Jesus with angels. And so he's going to really lay out that the superiority of Christ here because he wants them to be rooted as they start the church in Christ. So let's just jump in. Hebrews chapter 4, or chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Let's take a look at that first piece there. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the first thing, which is kind of is a really high-level view, is just this idea that Jesus is superior. The name that he's been given is a name above all names, right? We, we hear that in Scripture. He has the name above all names. Is the name of Jesus. I want to share with you as I, as I think about, as I kind of did a little study through the text here, and you're going to have to bear with me here. It's going to take a few minutes. When we used, I, I, was, I was watching a show the other day, and I'll just, you know, I don't know, it was a movie, I forget what it was, and, you know, Jesus' name is being used. And, and not, not always, like, with a, with a foul language, like foul, but just, just used in an inappropriate way. It's just used. And I'm thinking, they have no idea the name. That the, they don't understand the holiness, the, the superiority of this name and the reverence that we should have for this name. And so I, I began to kind of go through scripture, and I'm not going to read all the chapters and verses to you, but if you want to know where they're at, I can show them to you. I want to just kind of go through a, a litany of his name. In his name, the Gentiles hope. We gather in his name. Demons are cast out in his name. Whoever believes in his name, he has the right to become children of God. Whatever you ask in his name. So we ask in his name. The Father will send the Holy Spirit in his name. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved if we call on his name. Repent and be baptized in his name. There is no other name under heaven given among men which must be saved. Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Forgiveness of sins in his name. Proclaim his name in all the earth. Call upon his name. Assemble in his name. Do everything in his name. Acknowledge his name. Glorify God in his name. Believe in his name. Do not deny his name. Revelations 3, 8. His name is above every name. Philippians 2, 9. And every knee will bow at his name. 
Philippians 2.10. So what's the point? We're going to look at seven things that Jesus is superior here in the text that, that the author is trying to say. And the first thing is, is that he has a superior name. Amen? His name is superior. Right? The name of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And so, as you're living out your life, be careful how you use that name. I would encourage you to not listen as much as you can to shows or things that abuse that name because it is superior to all names. So what else do we see there, though? So he has a superior name. And then the second part of that verse is, to, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what do you see here? What we're seeing is this is really taken from the Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It's a direct quote out of that. He's quoting here. He's bringing the Psalm from the Old Testament, and he's reminding the Jews, this is what God says about Jesus. He says, I will tell you, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This word begotten, it's not made. It's, it's not like um, he's made the angels. He's created the universe. He's begotten Jesus. He's, he's, it's him. He's, he's brought him into existence, so to speak, but he's always existed. He's, given, he's been given a name. He's there, but he's been given an identity as part of the Godhead, and he's the Christ, the Messiah. The same nature, the same divine nature, but he's been given a name. He's been begotten in this role. And so what do we see here is there's, there's a difference that the, that the author's trying to pull apart here. He's saying, look, everything else has been given, has been made by God. And in fact, not only made by God, but made through Christ. But yet Christ was not made. He was begotten. In fact, if you um, read some of the, the, like the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, it, it clearly says that he was begotten but not made. Because there was this huge distinction about who he was. And, and if he was made, then he, he couldn't be God, could he? He couldn't be. And so here, he's begotten, not made. And so the author is parsing these two things out. And so what do we see here? This, this idea of his name is, is kind of tied into this as well. He is the son of God. He is the son. So yes, he is the name of Jesus, but that name also, he is the son of God. And so that kind of ties into what the author's trying to say here. But what's the second thing we see in his superiority here? Is that not only he has a superior name, but he has a superior relationship with the Father. A su superior relationship. It's not just he has a superior name. The Father has given him that name. He has a superior relationship because he is God. He is part of the, the Godhead. He is part of the Trinity here. This relationship that's, that's unique, um, the only son of God. What intimacy in there. We go back once again. We look in the, the Old Testament and we see when God creates men. He says, let us create man in our own image. We see the relationship there. Us. There's this relationship in the Godhead before the foundations of the world. There was a, a community, a relationship that was taking place between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's an intimate, superior relationship. 
Everyone else has a relationship with God. How? Only through Christ. Christ has the unique relationship with the Father. He is the Son. And that's when it says, or again, I will be to him a father and to me a son. So we see he has a superior relationship. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 says again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, so here, I think the writer is kind of tapping in to say, look, you've been kind of worshiping angels. You've been putting angels kind of on, on a pedestal here and, 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 a, and a hierarchy, but I'm letting you know that the angels worship him. He is not just one of the angelic being that has come and, and, and took it on life here and raised from the dead. No, this is God. He is superior. The angels will worship him. Once again, we see this is a, a quote from Psalm 90, 98, verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. We're talking about the Old Testament again in the picture. We see the that David is a king, King David, and, and the throne of David, and, and we see that's once again a, a picture of the kingship of Christ. It's a foreshadowing, right, that, that Christ will sit on the throne of David. It'll be his throne. It's all picturing and foreshadowing Christ. This idea of being firstborn. We see this in a couple places in Scripture where Jesus is the firstborn. And so, we say, well, how, what does that mean, really? Well, I want to tell you that it, it is not a literal sense. Like, Jesus was born, right, in 2,000 years ago. He existed prior to that, but as far as being born, and it says, well, he's the firstborn. Well, no, there was people born before that. But in the, in the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, the firstborn had privilege, the firstborn of the family had the rights. They were the, the ones that would inherit. They had the rights. They had the authority. And so what God is doing here is he's saying, it's, it's not the literal firstborn that he's talking about. He says, I'm going to give him prominence. I'm going to give him privilege, right? I'm going to give him a status as the firstborn among all things. And so where do we see that? We see that in a couple different places. I'm just going to give you two. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says it this way. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. So now wait a minute. He wasn't born until, you know, like I said, it's not a literal being born. It's a status. It's a prominence. It's a, it's a place that God has given his son over all humanity. We'll see it a little bit clearer maybe here as Paul goes on in Colossians 1 verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. See the preeminence? It's, he's the authority over all things. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead in everything, that in everything he might have preeminence. He was the firstborn from the dead. Now that we could say, yes, that could literally be there too. Is it, he was the firstborn from the dead. He was the first one to rise from the dead in that state. In other words, to be guiltless and, and shameless and, and free of sin, right? He was the first one in that sense. Everybody else is going to come through that resurrection. If we die with Christ, we're raised with Christ. But until Christ, even in those in the Old Testament, they're all being saved. Anyone that, that had faith and was saved is being saved through the death and resurrection of Christ. They're looking to the Messiah, and we are looking back. He is the firstborn. I just, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That everything might be 
in him might be preeminent. In other words, he has superiority in all things. He is first among all things. He's the first of the creation. He's the first of the raising from the dead. He is preeminent. He is before all things. And that's why God's, the Gospel of John chapter 1 is so important, that all things were made through him and by him and for him. Nothing that was made was not made except for through him. And so what do we see here? Jesus has a superior name. He has a superior relationship with the Father. So what is this text telling us? He has a superior standing, right? He has a preeminent standing. His, his role, his, his standing before creation and all of it, he has a, an authority there, a royalty that is, is his and his alone. It's not just his name. It's not just his relationship with God, but he's given a prominent position over all things. And then the second part of that verse, it says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, here it it's, gets a little fuzzy. I would encourage you to study this. The psalmist is quoting something because there's quotes here. He's letting let all God's angels worship him. But yet when we look into the Old Testament, we can't find exactly that quote. And so many people believe, and you'd have to get in to study the Hebrew and, and the Greek, but many people believe that it is based on Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. The verse says this, this was really a song of Moses that looked forward to the triumph of Israel over its enemies, right? And we can see that's a picture of Christ, right? Uh, Israel is a picture of Christ, and it's this idea that they're going to triumph over their enemies. Well, that's Christ is going to do that for us. He's going to triumph over our enemies. He's ultimately going to triumph over death. And so here in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, it says this, Rejoice in him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Well, that is a picture of Christ. But this, it's this idea that all things are going to bow to him. All, all little g gods, which are not really gods, not the way we consider God. All things, all angels, no matter who you worship, whatever you think you're worshiping, whether you're worshiping an angel, all things are going to bow to Christ. Everything is going to bow. And why? Because he has a superior name, he has a superior relationship, and because of his standing... That's what we're going to do. We're going to bow. We're, every knee will bow because of his name, his relationship, and his standing. It's clear to us. And so the, the author is just kind of working through the logic of this in the Old Testament. You know, I have to... Sometimes I, I've, not, I've tried to research this in the past. It's been quite some time. I mean, look what we have done with angels. It is, it is not right. <laughs> it is... It is, um, we almost worship angels at times. We, we have such a distorted view of them. And, and nothing against you ladies. But every angel that I see is this tall, long-haired, beautiful angel. Is that at all in Scripture that way? No. Isn't, you ever think about that? I mean, go, start looking Every statue, every angel, every, every angel on top of every Christmas tree. You ever see Michael up there? <laughs> no. I mean, 
What's going on there? Spiritual warfare, deception, lying, getting us off of who Christ is. We, we want to see Christ and we want to see who he is. And if, if, if Gabriel is, is demonstrated that way and Michael, they're, they're messengers, they're warriors, they're, they're, they're messengers of God. If we can see them in that status and, and they worship Christ, how much greater is Christ? But when we see a beautiful young angel woman, none of that comes into our mind. In fact, Scripture says when they saw angels in the Old Testament, they fell down in fear, right? There was an awesomeness. They, they trembled before the angels. Go back to Isaiah 6, right? When Isaiah was in the, pictured in the throne room, when they come and announce his birth, they trembled. And yet, I mean, I would encourage you to search it. Find it. Go to any this is horrible. Go to any Christian bookstore, which there almost isn't any anymore. Every statue, every ornament is a, is a woman. I mean, where does that come from? It's deception. It's absolute deception. And then we have begun to say, well, and, and I know it's innocent, and, and once again, but we have to be so careful. Oh, my, I, I lost my, my mom or my dad. And they got their wings. No. No. They're, we do not become angels. That is not in Scripture. In fact, we're going to see here as we move through Hebrews that, that, that we are above the angels. Right? Not out of pride, but I'm saying we, this is our place. This is where God has placed us. They are servants. They are powerful servants to carry out what God is doing in his providential work and creation and to bring about all of his plans. But we, when we die, we do not get our wings. Right? Clarence, you're all thinking it. Ding, 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 right? Ring a bell and angel guys got his wings. But we, folks, church, we cannot talk that way. Because we are deceiving the world. We are painting a picture of Jesus and of angels that is absolutely heresy, really, if you want to talk about it. And he said, what's the big deal? It is a huge deal. Because how we picture Christ, what did I say last week? Is your view of Christ, what is it? Is it big enough? Does it, is it clear? Is it biblically solid? Some people have all sorts of, well, I have my guardian angel over here, and I have this one, and I have this one, and I have this one. And Yes, is God using angels for our benefit? Yes, I believe he is. And, and does he work in our, the, the angels work in our lives? Yes. Should we pray to angels? No. Should we glorify in angels? Absolutely not. It is Christ that we glory in. And if Christ wants to send a legion of angels to do something, praise be to God, he will do that. If he wants to send one, whatever he wants to do. If he wants to make an announcement, let him do that. But our affections and our eyes should be set on Christ and him alone. Not anything else. And that's really what the author is trying to get across to the Jewish people. He says, if you have any doubt about who is superior here, it is the name of Christ. It's the relationship of Christ. It is his standing. And what is the fourth one we see? Is it superior worship? He's saying, worshiping Christ, he is deserving of all worship. He is, his worship is superior. In other words, we, we, can, um, we can enjoy other things, but our worship for Christ is superior. He deserves a worship unlike any other worship that we would ever have. And not just, here it is again, not just because of, of 
what he's done. See, that's, that's part of the problem, in, in our, and I see it in my own heart sometimes. I'm always going to say, well, he did this, and so he's worthy of praise. He, he died for me, so he's worthy of praise. And, and that's true. Praise God for that. He absolutely did. But he was worthy before he did that. Right? He, he was worthy of my, my praise even if he doesn't save me. He's worthy of my praise. Can you picture that for a second? I know who he is, and, and God says to me, let's say, um, I'm not going to save you, Raleigh. You're sinful, and my justice is, is this. And Does that mean I shouldn't praise him? No, he's still worthy of praise. Even though maybe I will spend eternity Away from him, he is still worthy of praise. And when you get to Ephesians, or excuse me, uh, Philippians 9 and 10, what does it say? Every knee will bow. That doesn't mean just the knees of Christians. Every knee will bow and will worship. So he is worthy of praise. Whether he, is, whether he has saved you or not, whether you are, know him that way or not, he is worthy of praise. So once again, it's, it's just painting this picture of the supremacy, the superiority of who Christ is. Then in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. We'll go into this much, but what, basically what he is saying here is that the angels have power. He makes them, I mean, think about the wind. We've been watching TV. We've seen some of the tornadoes and some of the stuff that's happened down in Louisiana and different places in the country. We saw it here a few years ago, and the power of wind. We know the power of fire, right? We see, look over in Ukraine, and we see the bombs and, and all the fire and every burned-out building. He's, he's relating this and saying, look, angels have great power. Absolutely. He's made them with great power. But... Great power serves at the pleasure of the Lord. Not on their own. They don't wield it on their own. It serves at the power of the Lord, the name of the Lord. It yields, it worships at that name. We see, and I don't have time to go there today, but we go into to Revelation, and the angels are constantly gathered around the throne. Holy, 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 right? We see it in Isaiah once again. There's this picture of them absolutely yielding, bowing in their hearts and, and whatever their nature is to be able to worship him. It goes on there in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. It says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of the uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Boy, there's so much there that we don't have time to get into. The first one I want to show you there, though, is your throne, O God. He's, he's pulling this now from Psalm 45, verse 6. It's really about a, a marriage kind of feast of a, of a king, some king in Israel, but it has a messianic view. This is one of those places where he's grabbing this text and he's saying, yes, in the Old Testament, this psalm was maybe about a specific king, but now it's going to have a fulfillment in some way. He's going to bring it in and say, but the Lord says this, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So what is the, what is the, the writer saying here? He's telling this to Jesus. He's saying, your throne, oh God. He is calling him God. That's the whole point. He's now not just saying he has a superior name, he has a superior relationship, he has a superior standing, his worship is superior, but he is God. He's not just the name, he is God. And so what do we see here? He has a superior nature. He has a superior nature. I could say he has a, a divine nature, Right? He is the Messiah. It goes on there, though, and it says basically his, 
His reign will be forever, right? His forever and ever. The scepter of the uprightness, the scepter is of your kingdom. This idea you loved righteousness and hated wickedness is not that a beautiful picture of Christ. He loved righteousness. So much so that he laid down his life to be able to, to defeat death and wickedness. Then it says, therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What, what do we see here is taking place, right? Anytime a, a priest or a king uh, kind of took their role, they were anointed, not, not like christened, not like uh, some approval. It was, it, was an, it was a favor that was given over them. And what's, what you're seeing this picture is, is that God the Father has anointed the Son because he is worthy. He's, he's been anointed this way, right? With oil, he's, he's shown favor to him here. We can see here in the picture of Jesus, even you could probably extrapolate maybe when Jesus is, is anointed with oil before his death, right? It's this picture of his royalty and being anointed He's worthy, and oil was expensive. It's this beautiful picture of just loving and, and raising him up. In fact, where do we see that? It goes on there. It says, the oil of my companions, beyond my companions. We don't know exactly what that kind of means, but was it other people? Was it other kings? Was it, was it all other rulers in the world? Like, he's been anointed above all others, any of his companions, any of anyone in the world, he has been above them. Where do we see this in a very prominent psalm, Psalm 23, verse 5, right? The 23rd Psalm. What does the psalmist say there? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And what does he say? You anoint my head with oil, and my cup runs over. It's this picture that he's anointing his son in this incredible affirmation of who he is and his superiority. All right, Hebrews chapter one, verse 10 and through 12. It says, and you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. Here he's acknowledging, like we talked about last week, that everything was made through Christ. He's the agent of creation. And the heavens are the work of your hands. We all say amen to that. They will perish. So folks, whatever you're holding on to, it's going to perish. All your stuff, your home, your beautiful yard, all your landscaping that you've sweat for years to get just the way you want it, is all going to perish. It's all going to be rolled up like a garment. Right? And now I'm not saying you shouldn't take care of your house. Your neighbors definitely want you to keep your weeds down and mulch your yard and do all that stuff. But just see what he's saying here. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. Nothing is going to last that's temporal. But you remain. Boy, think of the, what he's doing here. He, he's telling the Jews that all that we've been doing, all the, the Mount Sinai, the, the Red Sea, all the temple, all of it is going to perish. Nothing is going to last but Christ will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. 
superiority over creation. So what do we see here? Superior existence. He has a superior existence. We're all temporal. We're all finite. The world is finite. Christ is infinite, and he is eternal. He has a a superior existence, one that we can't even get our mind around. As I was, I've been talking to so many people these last few days and, and about the mysteries of, of the gospel, about the mysteries of who God is and, and, and things that we just have to hold sometimes as a mystery because we can't understand it sometimes. And, and some of us struggle with some of those things. And I said, but, you know, I remember when I was like young, because I'm very old now, but when I was young, um, like 12 to 15, 16 years old, when I would begin to think, and I don't want to hope I don't traumatize anybody here, um, I used to think about God that he existed for eternally. Maybe some of you can relate to this. And I would really like, meditate on it. Like, well, how's that possible? Whew. It was dark days sometimes. I mean, it was like, how's that, how is it even possible that he exists? How is it possible that something existed forever? I mean, I, I can't even get my mind around that. And many years ago, I just said, uncle, <laughs> right? I mean, I believe. In the beginning, God. He, he is preeminent. He is there. He has existed before all things. And really what's happening here is, is the writer is saying, that is Jesus. He has an eternal existence. He is infinite. And so he is superior in his existence. It goes on there in Hebrews 13. To which of the angels he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. That's a direct quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalmist is just saying, this is who he is. You know, this idea of sitting at the right hand of the Father, the right hand was obviously one of royalty, of authority. Um, But the other thing, if you think about this idea of sitting is royalty. The angels never, we never hear them sit. They're going, they're messaging, they're working, they're servants. But, but God, Christ, sits on the throne. He's, he's royalty. He's, there's servants all around him. All, of, all in the Revelation, everybody's around him, around the throne, worshiping. But he's the only one on the throne. There's only one throne. And he's it. He's on it. First Peter puts it this way in chapter 3, verse 22. It says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him? All creation is subjected to him. The angels are subjected to him. Right? Once again, we could go into Revelation. It says, Who is worthy to open the scroll? No one is worthy. And then the lamb comes and he is worthy to open the scroll. He is superior in all things. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Someday, all things will put un- be put under Christ. There will be no throne, no, no government, no, no ruler, no, no principality that won't be put under Christ in his reign. All right, got to wrap up. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, last verse. For, they are, not, are, for are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He's saying that not only is Jesus superior here in his existence and his nature, but the angels are there to help 
you come to know Christ. They are working to bring salvation, to serve the Messiah. Are they not all ministering spirits sent, right? Think about when we go into Romans again, right? And we talked about how will they know unless someone is sent. I mean, God is always sending us to share the gospel. We just sent Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I should say God sent them and we're helping fund their trip, right? God has sent them. He is sending you to your neighbor. Way back, God is using, even now, God is sending angels. What? For the sake of those who inherit salvation. He is working in our lives spiritually, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but what? Against powers and principalities. There's things in the spiritual world that are going on that are above my pay grade. (laughs) They're above my understanding, But yet, that's where it's taking place. And it manifests itself in my flesh and in your flesh. But there is something going on spiritually, and we want to make sure that we are trying to yield to it, understand the superiority of who Christ is, get a right picture, a right mind of who Christ is. And so what's the last thing, the the seventh thing that we see he is superior in here? He has a superior reign. He has a superior reign. He reigns forever and ever. All things are subject to him. His reign is superior. And so what's the, what are the things, just real quick? He has a superior name. No other name except for Jesus. Every knee will bow. He has a superior relationship. He is the only son of God, the unique one and only of the Father, of the same divine nature, part of the Godhead. He has a superior relationship. He has a superior standing. He has authority like no one else. He has superior worship. He's deserving of all of our worship above all things. He has a superior nature. He is God. He has a superior existence, right? He is eternal. And ultimately, that's all summed up And because of all those things, he has superior reign over all things. So the question I want to leave you with this morning, how have you responded to Jesus' superiority? Have you rebelled against that superiority? I know I do it sometimes. I'm not not always thoughtfully, I'm not like consciously, but I'm rebelling when I do what I want to do. Right? Why do we do what we do? Because we want what we want. And when I do those things and it doesn't line up and I know that it's not right, I was, um, shared some, some part of a message yesterday at, at a funeral. And this idea in, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, you know, the thing I want to do, I do not do. The thing I do that I hate, I do those things. And this struggle in the flesh, right? There's this just struggle in the flesh. And what I want to keep reminding is if I get my picture of who Jesus is rightly, if I understand the magnitude of who Christ is, not just that he saved us, not just that he died on the cross, that is such a beautiful thing, but there's so much more before that that we, we miss, we don't, we don't focus on. Who he is is glorious. All his power, all his superiority is glorious. That should overwhelm you. And then this idea that he would die for you makes it even more sweet and more precious because if he's all this and he would do that for me, how much more does that overwhelm me then? When we begin to see that, and that's why it's, it's so backwards when we just go right to salvation, right to that he died for us because what we're really telling somebody is, hey, God did this for you, and, and, but, but they don't understand the, the significance of what God is doing. There's two pieces to that. One, we need to understand that we are wretched, right? In fact, Paul says there in Romans chapter seven, 
Oh, what wretched man am I? Who will deliver me, deliver me from this body of death? Christ Jesus, our Lord, right? And so this right picture of who Christ is, his superiority, his supremacy, his preeminence, the nature of who we are, there's this huge gap in the fact that God would come and descend and become a man and die for us and humble himself and die on a cross, a brutal death to save us should bring you to your knees. That's why we worship, because of all of that. And so I'm going to leave you with this passage. This sums it up, I think, and we read it often because it's, it's just so good. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. First of all, in 1 through 5, he talks about that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but we should consider God. And, and then he paints this picture of Christ. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Total supremacy. Total superiority. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To glory of God the Father. How do you stand before the superiority of Christ? Is your view of him big enough? These last two weeks, that's what, that's what the Hebrews is trying to get across. Let's rightly see him for who he is. For all the beauty and all the superiority and all the majesty, let us rightly see him. And as Isaiah says, and then be undone before him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, we thank you for sending your son, the perfect image bearer of you and your character, the exact imprint of your nature as we talked about last week. Father, today may we yield to all of these things because you are superior in all things. May we be overwhelmed with just who you are, your preeminence, your eternal standing, your unique superior relationship that you have. Father, may you get our worship over all things. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today that does not know you, that they have come and heard the word of God preached and heard who you are. And, and not, not, we haven't really even talked about what you've done for us, just who you are. And may that shake them. May it cause their heart to melt like wax before you. And may they see you in all your glory. May you allow that to happen. May you call their name so that they will come to know you and surrender their life to you. Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you for this writer and how he is proclaiming and reminding us of the superiority of Christ. May our knees bow today willingly and may we confess our wretchedness before you and then we may praise you for the glorious grace that you have given us through your son through the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.